This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we are live with Ron Rohde, who you may recognize as a guest from before. And uh, here on Sunday, this upcoming Sunday, we're going to be releasing a story of the deal video on an industrial outdoor storage property that he acquired uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which we were able to check out while we were in town visiting Ferry, uh, Ferry Space. And I figured today we'd have Ron in to talk more about industrial outdoor storage. It's a very hot topic. And in my opinion, it's an incredible covered land play uh, if you do it the right way. But it's not just set it and forget it, right? It may be a little less complicated than some other aspects of commercial real estate, but there are still some nuances that you've got to keep in mind as you're going into this. So, Ron, uh, that is a brief introduction of yourself, but tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, industrial real estate. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. It's good to see you again. Um, so my background is as a commercial real estate attorney. Um, I, I've been a practicing lawyer for almost 15 years, and this was what I did, you know, transactional real estate, helping investors buy, manage, lease, and then sell commercial real estate. So eventually, you know, I kind of got tired of them seeing their net to seller. And, uh, those were the big numbers. I said, these guys are idiots. They're not any, I'm not any dumber than they are and I have the capital. So why not? I can be a dumb idiot too. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of my story. I started off in SFR like a lot of people. I had six units. Um, you know, Some of them were free and clear, but they're all rented with property management. But it's just too much. Um, I was starting a law firm. I'm married. I've got two kids. It's, it's too much to handle on a day-to-day. So fast forward, you know, this is about five or six years ago, sold everything, uh, which I thought was a great time in DFW six years ago. Uh, sold everything for great appreciation, great cash on cash, and dumped all that equity into a couple industrial properties. And uh, these were single tenant, net leased, you know, triple net leased, about thirty to and forty thousand square feet of property, um, and it's going great. But fast forward to the last two years, we've really focused on industrial outdoor storage. So tell us what industrial outdoor storage is. So we define it as any type of low coverage site as defined by 20% or less of the total square footage is covered in improvements. <clears throat> so that's primarily going to be, you know, a small building, uh, maybe a small office, a, a warehouse, a truck terminal, maybe it could be a maintenance shed, uh, but it has less than 20% of the total square footage. And again, I'll caveat a little bit and kind of tipping off the future conversation, looking at flood zones, looking at buildable square footage. It's very, very tricky once you go to unimproved land because you don't necessarily know that a five acre site is actually five acres of usable square footage. You have flood zone, you have different geotech technical issues. And so it's reduced based on your buildable square footage. But that's how I define it. And the zoning has to allow for outdoor storage of some shape or form uh, by right. And that's what I would technically define as industrial outdoor storage. 
So how do you go about finding deals like this? I mean, are you looking on LoopNet or is this a talking to brokers or? So, you know, like most things, it's kind of a story. When we first started doing this, uh, our deal sizes were too small. You know, these are these are between I, we're buying infill uh, just to clarify. So within the boundaries of DFW. So we're not talking about farmland. We're not in the county. We are solidly within the city in industrial districts tends tends to be within industrial districts. But this is infill. Um, and so these are still at three to four to 500,000 an acre, uh, maybe even more, but uh, it's still too small for a lot of brokers to want to deal with. I think maybe going forward, they are interested in these deals, but anyway, so we couldn't get the time of day from brokers. So we had to build our own off market network. And what that means is you go on Google maps, you, you start looking at some of these prop stream um, services, and just make a list of every single property in your market that you would be willing to buy. And it may seem daunting, but once you get to see a lot of the properties, I can eliminate really, really quickly. And it's, I just savage, you know, if something is not right, I just cross it off. And what you'll end up with is we have a list of call it two or 300 sites that if I could buy all of these, I, you know, I'd be done. That's a lifetime worth of, of buying, but I'd be a, a very, very rich uh, person. And you just rank them uh, with a composite score based on, you know, just try to keep it simple, say five factors of iOS, proximity to highways, the shape of the lot, um, the slope of the lot, uh, the, you know, the, the zoning, because even within zoning, uh, there's different industrial types of zoning that are better for outdoor storage. Um, and then finally, you know, might be just kind of like the owner or the current use. It has cash flow. It's kind of a wild card. But you come up with a composite because there are some properties that are a better size, uh, but not a great location. Some properties that have a better use, but not as great improvements. So you just come up with a composite and you rank all these sites and you just start at the top. You, you know, these days, the amount of off market information you can get about a seller is incredible. I mean, we get emails and we may get a lot of emails, email addresses for various sellers and you just pound them. Um, we, we do text messages, we do phone calls, we do flyers, we do emails and you just keep flooding called the initial 30 or 50 and you see who responds. Um, and so all of our deals, I would say, have been off market and kind of either brought to us or we we shook it, you know, shook the trees and made the deal happen. Yeah, I like that approach because that's pretty much what a broker would be doing. I mean, I have my brokerage team doing something very similar with their prospecting. It's pick 600 properties that are the top tier uh, properties that you want to, to, to list or sell or transact in any sort of way and hit them once a quarter because that's 10 a day during business days every quarter. So all you need are 600 properties. And if you get 1% of those properties to respond in, each, in any given quarter, you're doing pretty well. Let's see the... Uh, the king of industrial real estate himself, Chad Griffiths, just jumped in. Chad, what's going on, man? Uh, thank you for joining us. Ron and I are obviously both very good friends with Chad. So uh, good to see you there, man. Ron, tell us, you know, what makes a site ideal for industrial outdoor storage? So the ideal site for us represents the most number of exit opportunities. And I've talked about this before. If you subscribe to my YouTube channel, I talk about it a lot. But before you buy, before you close, what is your exit? 
who are you going to sell to and what do they want to see in the property? So our ideal iOS will have a lot of characteristics that we could either intentionally improve or we can rely on the market to improve to create the best exit for us. And you know, for us as a seller, it's not necessarily always the highest price, right? Maybe an owner user will pay the highest, highest price per foot ever, but that doesn't necessarily help us if we're not in an environment where there's a lot of owners trying to buy, you know, if there's consolidation or whatever. And so instead, we want to make sure that we have multiple exits that are all around the same price point because it gives us leverage when we're negotiating with any one buyer. Hey, well, you're you're an investor and you see that the way that we do and it's a great cap rate and it's increasing NOI. But if you don't if you don't want to buy it, we have a developer over here that's also valuing it on a same price per foot basis and he's going to build vertical because the site is clear it's ready to go no demolition you can you know work with the city the city is pretty eager to actually develop these sites into vertical tax dollars and so i can argue that so if i've got an investor sale i can put pressure on him that i have a developer waiting in the wings if for example my tenants are occupying the property and they're putting an offer to me say, hey, Ron, we, we want to buy it. We like the location. We really want to lock in and control our future. We want to buy it. I'll say, OK, great. But I've got, you know, um, <clears throat> another uh, buyer also interested. So I think I, I touched on that. But another investor just on NOI increases and in cap rate, you have the tenant uh, as an owner user, as a per possible buyer um, developer um, is, is, is an exit. And, you know, I guess ultimately you could also say you could recapitalize and, and develop it yourself. But that's a lot of exits that is more than some other industrial properties or like for a multifamily, you can only sell to another investor. I mean, maybe you could do condo conversions or something. I've heard those are kind of coming back in vogue, maybe the, the yeah. reverse fracture. But but the point is, you know, if you buy an office building with a, a ton of tenants, you, you don't have a lot of options. And, and it's not necessarily cheap to demo the building and, and build from scratch. So what we like about iOS is the ideal site will have lots of exits. You know, you're going to look for development characteristics. You're going to look for flat. You're going to look for buildable square footage. Um, not just usable for iOS square footage, but those exits. So that's what makes an ideal site. I like that strategy going into it because you always have another route to take, which is incredibly important as an investor, especially in a market like what we're in today, right? If you were just hoping that some private equity firm was going to buy it on a cap rate and you didn't have the, you know, hey, we could sell it to the tenants, we could sell it to another developer, we could sell it to, you know, the neighbor. I mean, if you don't have those those options, it's going to be really tough to transact in this environment. Uh, I, I love industrial outdoor storage as a covered land play because it it allows you to cash flow the land, make some pretty decent money, but then you know where you really can make a big pop is on that exit if you're buying in the path of development. Let's see, Chad's got a, another question here. How do you mitigate environmental risks when you're dealing with smaller tenants on shorter term leases, or Another way of asking, how often are you conducting ESAs and holding tenants accountable if there are any signs of contamination? Obviously, in industrial real estate, that is always of concern because you as the landlord will have to deal with that. And environmental risks could cost you tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. 
Yeah, so it's absolutely a, a concern. Um, I have two issues, you know, kind of like live environmental issues right now that we had to engage a geotechnical engineering firm, Terracon. Um, and so we had them come out. This was regarding fill dirt, um, but basically, you know, con contaminated uh, fill that the tenant, I guess I can, I, I can sort of, so the tenant was scooping out clean fill from the site and replacing it with some trash from their excavation jobs. Cause that's what they're, you know, they store like bulldozers and backhoes and different types of graders on, on the site, but they were poaching fill dirt from the site, backfilling it with some concrete and rebar and chipped up, you know, trash basically from their jobs and then putting dirt over the top of it. Um, and, and my client, uh, realized it and had to, you know, bring the hammer down because they're a real company. They weren't just kind of fly by night. So, I would say, yes, that's an issue for us too. You know, we do a lot of semi-truck parking, um, oil, right? Petro petroleum products is, is a big concern as they're doing oil changes every week, but having active boots on the ground to observe these things, early recognition is going to be the most important thing for all of this. And so you've got to have that consistent boots on the ground and Again, maybe it could be cameras, uh, but you've got to be checking the footage. You've got to be, you know, zooming around and looking at it. Or that means sending somebody by to physically inspect, give them a checklist, ask for photos, ask for video, have them walk to all four corners, check behind things, you know, look at the fence line. But yes, I think you you, you have a heightened risk of those types of things for the reasons that Chad uh, mentioned. And and yeah, f funny enough, we do we do have two issues with uh with environmental right now it hasn't gone to anything bad but you definitely need to be more aware of that than other buildings that's right and and you know when you're buying any sort of, of commercial real estate if you're using a lender the lender is going to require you to do a phase one environmental where people get a, into themselves into a lot of trouble is when they're paying cash they don't have a lender saying hey i need this environmental report and I've seen investors just buy properties without even digging into the environmental, and that is a recipe for a disaster. Do not do that. Go out, get a phase one environmental at the very minimum in order to make sure you know fully what you are getting into. So, Ron, let's let's assume you've found a site, like one of your two or 300 sites that checks the boxes. What are you looking at when you get out to the property, and what are you planning in your head for the next steps of that site? Yeah, so when when we do an additional initial drive by, um, we're going to be looking at the area and what is surrounding this site. Is it commercial? Is it retail? Is it other industrial properties? Because I think the ideal neighbors for us, obviously, it's not residential. There's a fair amount of residential sites that will abut residential uh, zoning, and you don't want that. That really restricts your certain uses, or you've got to put up very expensive kind of tall fencing. Um, as a barrier, but we, we look at that neighborhood uh, and then we look at the freeways. I, I, you know, the site that we went to um, is, is fantastic because it has three major highways all directly adjacent within half a mile in, in three different directions. You go and hit three major highways. That's something that we look for that if it's easy access and I'm not sure how to describe it if you're just on Google Maps, because sometimes a property is 
approximately close to a freeway. But when you go actually drive, you realize that that freeway is elevated. Maybe it doesn't have an exit. Maybe it doesn't have an on-ramp. And so it looks approximately close. But if you actually try to drive onto the highway, it may take you 10 minutes. And I'm not sure if that's a good example, but that's what you, you try to get a sense for is what type of district is this in? What type of uh, activities would the city encourage or permit? Um, and, you know, crime, outdoor storage is inherently about security of, of the goods. And so if you don't have a secure yard, tenants are not going to lease with you. And so that's critical to understand from driving around. Maybe you drive by at night because um, you're starting to see signs. And again, I don't think you're going to know this the very first time. But I promise you, if you drive 10 different yards and 10 different lots, you will see some that you say, this looks like crime is an issue and this looks safer. And I don't know how to necessarily tangibly say, you know, sagging fences or you'll see fence, chain link fence where it's kind of stretched along the lines. And you just look at it and you're like, oh, maybe somebody was trying to get in or maybe it got pushed by a truck. I'm not sure what the reason is, but the only way that I would say you can do that is to drive 10 different iOS lots looking for, quote unquote, you know, these these factors. And then you'll start to get develop a gut feel yourself. And that's uh, something we look for. We look at the number of improvements. Obviously, if it's an improved yard with gravel or some type of um, you know, crushed concrete, um, asphalt, if it is, or, or concrete is what we have in Texas. Uh, fencing, what's the condition, the quality? Is it um, barbed wire, three-strand barb? How high is it? Uh, gating, lighting, what's the type of technology of the lighting? That's that's kind of an easy win area. You can get these great, great LED lights now that use less power, more light, better controls, um, sensor, motion sensors, you know, the technology on lighting has come a long way. And I guarantee if you if you drive 10 of these yards, you're going to see the old halogen halide, you know, ballast style where it's like purplish light. <clears throat> and you're like, holy cow, this thing is 42 years old and half of them don't work. So easy kind of value add that you can can spot uh, when you're driving. And, you know, again, you don't necessarily capture that from photos. You don't see it in Google Maps, the little light box looks pretty small and generic. You don't know if it's something current or something old. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's the really the critical short list that we look for on a, on a site visit. Yeah. So it sounds like some easy value adds, adding fencing or better fencing, probably an electric gate, right? Remote controlled access so that the, the tenants can come in and out. You talked about led lighting, uh, maybe even security cameras. Yes. Earlier you mentioned that you know, you're looking in the three hundred to five hundred thousand dollar an acre range. So let's walk through finances. I mean, if I if I buy an acre for three hundred thousand dollars, how many trucks can I expect to fit on that lot, and what can I expect them to pay? Yeah. So for semi truck parking, um, we are typically allocating out uh, seventy five feet by I'll say twelve. Um, it's kind of a range. Um, and it's a, there's a formula based on the width of your your hall access, your aisle access, because you know 
Let me see if we can do a drag ram. But as the truck pulls in, the the more angle he has to put in, he can he can slot the trailer into a narrower spot. So if you have a very very wide aisle, call it infinite width, you can make them about eleven feet wide. That's that's like folding the mirrors in. But if you have only a hundred and fifty foot or hundred and thirty five feet in the aisle, then you're going to need probably twelve to thirteen feet. So. I, I say that because it's it's not an exact science, but let's use that 75 times 12 feet. So that's 900 feet for every parking space. So let's just call it, uh, you know, a thousand. Um, we, we know our mnemonic devices, right? Four nuns drove down I-35 at 60 miles an hour. That's that's how you know how many feet are in an acre. <laughs> you know that? I didn't know that. Um yeah, so with that aisle, you know, you're looking at call it 40 parking spaces, um, and then from that math, so we have 40 parking spaces. If you're paying 300, I would maybe say your rates are 175 a month. Um, so that'd be 7,000 uh, in gross rent if you are fully leased, which our demand is 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 pretty high. Uh, so fully leased, I think is, is a fine assumption to get to. It just may take you some lease up time, but what would be typical? Like if you're underwriting it, what would be a good conservative guess? Like 80 to 90% occupancy? Oh, nineties for sure. No upper nineties. I think our problem that we run into, if, if we have any vacancy is that the, those parking spaces are just impossible to get kind of in and out of. They're like right at the end or they don't have an angle or um yeah i think that's the only reason or they park next to somebody that's terrible but um definitely uh, you should shoot for mid mid 90s okay awesome and so you said you're you're going to gross probably 7000 a month on 40 trucks yep so what uh what are your expenses going to look like yeah so property taxes that's that's your big one um insurance um again we're we're in texas so we're probably running closer to 2% uh, of, of value. Um, so you'll have property taxes off of that one. So what is six, six grand, 2% of 300. So what was I at? I was running a total. So 84 minus 6,000, um, insurance called another two grand, one, two, three. Um, and then, and then management, and this is kind of your biggest expense for personnel but also kind of the hardest to estimate. Um, you know, I think that we self-manage, um, so we don't necessarily charge a market fee trying to make a profit. We just kind of pass the expenses um, along to the property. But the, yeah, that that's the hardest part is figuring out the manage. So maybe I'll put in like a thousand bucks a month um, which maybe yeah, I mean, let's get. let's go further into that. I mean, if you're if you're self managing, and yeah. I mean, you've got a full time job, right? Sure. So sure. it seems like this is something that it'd be possible for you to self manage um, without you know taking up an immense amount of time. How, how many hours a week would you say it typically takes you? You know, managing the site. So I have a team of five employees that are, I say they work for the law firm, um, but I definitely commandeer them a lot for my investments. And so it, 
it maybe takes them five hours a week. The problem with this, and I think it's true for real estate deals in general, it's not just five hours when you choose the five hours. Right. When something happens, you have to respond immediately. You have to drop what you're doing and pick up the phone and and the police are at your property and, and what's going on. OK, I'll send somebody and fix it um, or, you know, there's a fire or, or, or a tenant you know issue. Um, and so that's the difference. And, and I have the customer service uh, to answer the phones. Uh, we use a great piece of software. I mean, easy storage uh, is, is what we use. Uh, maybe we can drop a link later. But the software helps a lot because it allows multiple people to, say, do text messaging. So that's another one of our value adds is a lot of these lots, if they're existing truck parking, terrible, terrible customer service. It's like you got to mail in a check or you drop off a check somewhere at your landlord's office to get paid um, once a month and you'll get like a handwritten receipt. So when we buy these properties, they literally have a seller rent roll that's written on paper and summed up with a calculator. We transfer everything to online where now our tenants are, they can see their full ledger. They can see their history. They can see their taxes, their, their, um, you know, payments. Uh, you, you can pay with credit card, debit card. Uh, we do text messaging for questions and complaints and all that stuff. And, and it's all on the website. And so we can do teamwork to respond to text messages. Cause I don't know, like one of our lots of, oh, the lot you went to, it has, has over a hundred trucks. It's not really a hundred tenants, but it's a it's a fair number of people where when something happens, we may get ten or fifteen or twenty text messages about it, um, and then we kind of have to engage in people. And so it's nice to divide and conquer. You can see the text message history, so you, you know I can jump in for somebody else. But the answer is I don't do a lot of that day to day. I would say I do zero of it. I have a week once a weekly meeting uh, with my team that's handling it, and I don't do anything quote, day to day on an urgent basis, um, because it, it it is a fair amount of work. You you have to be able to a little bit flexible. So maybe it's good for somebody that works remotely or they're they're uh, online a lot and, and they do have some flexibility that somebody calls you and you can respond and send somebody or ask to look at pictures and and uh, do that. But yeah, it's it's like herding cats a little bit. But once you kind of get a system down, management becomes so much easier and we've talked about it before but the systems that you institute and the more scale that you can get because i love everything that we i love every problem that we encounter because then we learn how to do it and apply it to our next properties and we add something to our checklist that says oh make sure you do this make sure you ask for that and you know get a copy of this driver's license before you do that and you know dot numbers for the trucks every time we learn we roll out that application to all the other sites. And that's huge where we learn from our own problems um, a lot faster because if you've got one property, it sucks. You know, you 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 spend a bunch of time to make 2000 bucks a month and then you've got to spend 5000 to fix something. And that's like your cash flow for for a month. Um, so that's that's how we manage it. Um, I think it definitely can be done. And if you have a willingness to learn about the industry a little bit, you you will find it's very easy, right? I mean, these are all, at the end of the day, we talk, the reason we invest in industrial is these are businesses. These are not irrational people who think you're a slumlord or, or have, you know, emotional distress because of something you did or the dog park is unavailable. I, I should not pay rent. I'm like, get out of here. These are people trying to run a business. 
the the minimum standard uh the the bar to me is can my business function and that's like all industrial tenants everywhere can my business function yes or no because if it's yes they're not going to bother you if the answer is no well i think as an owner i've got to fix that problem and and it's pretty urgent because if they can't run their business other people can't run their business and so it is a priority for me to fix whatever is going on for sure so so just to clarify before we get to the noi that 175 a month per truck is a gross number, right? Because it's going to be tough to break it up, to divide utilities among everybody, all that kind of stuff. So I think we were at 64,000 net. So we started off at, what, 84? We subtracted 6,000 for, uh, for your taxes. We subtracted 2,000 for insurance. And then we got down to by 12,000 for management. So that puts us at 64. What do you think you spend typically on, on utilities? It's probably not that much, right? Because it's a little. It's well, it's it's not much, but it is. I don't know. Utilities are expensive in Texas. I mean, paying yeah. thirteen cents a kilowatt hour, but uh, wow, it's it's a little bit deceiving. Yeah, because uh, we have a fair number of lights um, that are that are on a lot, um, but yeah, and it's all commercial. So that's another thing. Uh, this is a topic for another yeah, video. They just about charge you more about the security lights. I've had a lot of people ask me like, well, Ron, do you provide internet? Do you provide Wi-Fi to these truckers who a lot of them are doing business out of their cabs? You know, they're sitting in there on their phone or on their laptop. Do you provide Wi-Fi? And I said, I don't because for a five and a half acre yard to provide mesh network, it would just be insane. Um, and that's another cost that some people come in and think like, oh, internet, it's 50 bucks a month. You know, I can get AT&T or whatever. I'm like, no. You think you can, but you can't. And when you call them, AT&T sees the address and it pulls up as commercial and they're like 250 bucks. And I'm like, what? No, I just, I want the slow plan. I want the smallest, whatever. And they're like, your commercial, your minimum monthly charge is 250. I don't care how much data you use. It's 250. And so you can't do things cheaply in commercial. Save that, make it into a short but that's the answer of everything we run into is, oh, do you want to do Wi-Fi? Well, it costs us. Oh, you want electricity run to your site? 100 bucks a month for just the hookup charges. No no usage charges at all. So that's my answer is why it's kind of expensive because can't do anything cheaply in commercial. And even iOS qualifies as commercial. Yeah, so we're down to, what, 58,000 if you subtract another six grand for utilities per yeah. year. And I would so, pop another thousand for like software um, and different service license and professional. Yeah. And so is that pretty much what you could expect overall? Yeah. What do we have? 50? I mean, 57,000. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a great number uh, just on a cash unlevered yield on cost. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a 19% cap rate. Yeah. Well, that's that's, that's assuming the 300,000, you don't have to do anything to the lot. Everything's already there. So. Yep. That's probably going to be rare. <laughs> yeah, but those are cap, you know, those are capital improvements. I don't I don't mind that because you could probably juice that return with some positive leverage debt too. So, in your in your micro example, um that would be what you would expect for that type of lot. The challenges to finding that are again sourcing the property because that thing's not going to be listed on CoStar. It's not going to be on LoopNet. Um, one other source that I would recommend is actually we found a couple of good lots listed on Redfin or MLS. They were incorrectly listed 
in residential databases or multiple listing services. And it doesn't it doesn't happen a lot, but I would say once or twice a month, just do a search for that. Look at the land. And if you see anything that's development or if it's bigger, and if it's incorrectly listed for like residential development, but it's actually zoned industrial, that's a lot of times you can get a mispriced asset that way because clearly they've got a listing agent that doesn't know what they're doing and they've mispriced it as some type of residential when it really is highest and best is industrial. Um, and we've seen a couple that, you know, we've we talked to the the sellers and the listing agent about because they're just mis, mislocated because they have zero traction, right? They have no interest. So what, what surprised you about industrial outdoor storage or what did you wish you knew going into it? I wish I knew a lot more about the city uh, certificate of occupancy process and working with them a, a little bit more proactively, I would say, even before I bought. Okay. And how do you find tenants? I mean, are you putting a sign up out front or what does this look like? Yeah, so definitely signage. Um, I think that we use Facebook a lot. Um, we use Google My Business. That I mean, we get thousands of clicks on our Google My Business pages. And, you know, from those thousands of clicks, we get hundreds of um, inquiries. I don't know what, what would go. I, I actually just saw the, the monthly summary, but um, we get phone calls. We, you know, get dozens of phone calls. We get emails through the website. We, we get a lot of traction just from, I don't say organic SEO, but People look for truck parking near me on Google and boom, you want to have some Google reviews and, and people will know that you exist. Yeah. Here's some truck parking near you. Come <laughs> give me a call. Awesome. Well, Ron, I appreciate you jumping in for this conversation around industrial outdoor storage. If anybody in the audience listening wants to get a hold of you to talk about, you know, working with them from the legal perspective or investing with you or any of that, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, I would say the best way is is my YouTube channel, uh, same name, Ronald Rody Law. Um, then it's got the website, ronaldrodylaw.com. Wonderful. Ron, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate you all for listening, and we will see you all in the next one. This thanks. episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com.